deserving of praise as you are. Lord, uh, yet in our humble praises, Lord, we lift up your name. Lord, we give you all the honor that you deserve. And Lord, uh, not just in our words, but Lord, in our hearts, that, uh, that you, you might be, Lord, enthroned in the throne of our hearts as Lord and Savior, Redeemer, Sustainer, the one who sanctifies us every day. Thank you, Lord, for this um, time of uh, singing. We pray that, Lord, that as we uh, enter into our time of uh, listening and, uh, Lord, uh, listening to testimonies and uh, from your word, I pray that, Lord, that, uh, that, you be, uh, that you'll be talking to hearts here. And, Lord, we, we love you. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you can be seated. Yeah. And uh, this uh, morning, as you know, uh, we have the STPers uh, who are going to be uh, kind of taking over the rest of the uh, uh, service. Uh, we, got, we have three uh, young uh, ladies who are going to be coming forward. Uh, first, in this order, it's going to be Elda, uh, followed by Elena, and followed by Janelle. And then a not-so-young gentleman, Robert Dubal. At the very end, uh, uh, <laughs> he's going to be coming with the, with the devotion. So I'm, I call upon Elda to come forward. Hello, I, um, I haven't had the opportunity to meet you all, so I'd like to briefly introduce myself. My name is Alda Klingen, and I live in Saltillo, Mexico. I'm here in California to do STP. Um, several different um, people have asked me why I live in Mexico, so I'd like to tell you a little bit about my family. In the 1950s, my grandfather made the decision to go live in Mexico as a missionary. Um, when he left Michigan, three of his kids had already been born. The oldest is Bethan Tidmarsh, whom you all know, and one of these other kids was my dad. My dad did come back to the States to do some studying, but most of his life was spent in Mexico. That's where he met my mom, and that's where they got married. Most of our summers we've spent in the States, but we continue living in Mexico because that's, that's where we believe the Lord wants us to be now. There are seven kids in my family. Four of them are boys, so... Yes, I've lived a very rough life. <laughs> My parents were only able to have three biological kids, um, and they thought they would never have their dreams of having this big family. But the Lord had other plans in store. Um, he brought other four members to the family through adoption. I'm one of them. I grew up in a family where I was completely surrounded by good and rich heritage. Some of the most spiritual and God-loving people I know are my family members. And for as long as I can remember, the church I've grown up with meets at my home on a weekly basis for Sunday meetings and Bible studies. We're a small group of around 60 people. I had always heard about God, who he was, and was completely familiar with the Bible. With the stories, these were part of who I was. And if anyone were to ever ask me if I were a Christian, I would have said yes. Now, it's no secret that many kids raised in Christian homes don't always follow the Lord or struggle to follow him and just live a double life. In my family's case, we were no exception. When I was nine years old, I remember coming home and find both my parents brokenhearted and sad. I asked them what the problem was, and my parents explained to me that one of the deepest and heartbroken decisions as they can go through as parents is having one of their kids tell them that they don't want to follow Christ and they don't want to be a Christian. And that had happened with one of my siblings. He had said that no, he, knew, he didn't care to live at home anymore, and he didn't care to have a personal relationship with the Lord. Even though I was young, 
I saw the grief and pain this brought to my parents. And that night I decided I never wanted to cause them that pain. And I wanted to become a Christian. If that was what brought them joy, then I wanted to be a Christian. And it seemed like it worked. At the time, my parents were overjoyed that one of their kids had decided to follow the Lord. But I didn't understand what it meant. All I was doing, I was just trying to be a good daughter. There were other hard and painful moments in our family, but I always rest assured thinking that I was better and above my siblings because I wasn't the one causing trouble. As I grew up and entered my teenage years, things began to change in my life. At that time, I was sure my goal in life was to be a successful musician. So I joined my city orchestra in the hopes of becoming the world's best violinist. <laughs> the, um, we had rehearsals every day from 3 p.m. to 8 p.m. And when I wasn't re at rehearsals, I was at some event, concert, or something music-related. It had become my life. And in this orchestra, there were about 100 kids. One morning, a couple of hours before our daily rehearsal, we were asked to come in early. There was an emergency, and the directors wanted to talk to us. When we got there, they told us the sad news that one of our closest friends and our best clarinet player had committed suicide. It was, it was really bad. After we finished the meeting, my friends had so many questions for me. Where was he now? Was he in heaven? He should be right. He was, he was a good kid. I felt like I was supposed to know all the answers. I was the Christian girl, right? But I didn't. I felt so lost and couldn't answer their questions. I tried to get over it and think of other things. So many questions were just confusing my mind. After a couple weeks, everything went back to normal, and I thought I was over all these questions. But less than a month later, we were called in again. Our cello teacher, after leaving a party late at night while he was walking to his car, he was stabbed and killed for refusing to give up his car keys. This was major headlines, major news. Everyone was talking about it. So there I was, not even a month later, and we're grieving another death. Once more, I was completely surrounded by these questions, and I had no answers to them. I began to wonder, am I a Christian, and what does it mean to be a Christian? Some people can remember the exact date, maybe the exact hour of when they were saved. I don't. But I remember coming home with a heavy heart and aching soul, longing for answers. That night, our church had its weekly Bible study. The Bible study that Wednesday was about Isaiah 53. And it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I was one of these sheep that had gone astray. And he had laid my iniquity on him. I saw myself as that sheep and wondered if there was a way that sheep could come back to the shepherd. I realized my need for a savior. And there was nothing I could do on my own to have a relationship with him. Nothing I could ever say or do was enough. Only by his blood and his work on the cross could I be saved. After the meeting that day, I went to my parents and I shared how I felt. It was there and then when I became a Christian, when I truly and knowingly committed my life to the Lord. 1 John 1, 9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I confessed my sins that day, and now I know I have eternal life with him, and I can freely say, I am his and he is mine. All of a sudden, this made sense to me. When I was little, I had been adopted from some unknown place. My parents had been willing to do so much for me even without knowing me. I had been loved from them since day one. Now I was having a second adoption, not a spiritual one, and I was being born into a, the family of God, and I had a loving father who was willing to give the most loving gift of all, his own son. What a gift. 
I used to think my identity would depend on what I did in this world or what I would become. Through love, I've realized my identity is found in Christ and who he is. And my prayer's life is to be able to say, only one life to offer, Lord. Take it, I pray. Nothing from thee withholding. Thy will, now I will obey. Thou who hast freely given thine all and all for me, claim this life for thine own to be used, my Savior, every moment for thee. Thank you. Hello. My name is Elena Eager, and I live in Torreon, Mexico. I'm excited to share with you this morning a testimony of how throughout the years, God has used circumstances in my life to turn me away from believing four lies I was telling myself and eventually believing the truth of God's word. I grew up in a Christian home with parents who loved the Lord and were a testimony of prioritizing their love for him. I grew up hearing the word of God and never doubted his existence. However, I didn't understand my need for a savior until I was about eight years old when one of my sisters led me to him. I believe Jesus was the son of God and that he died on the cross for my sins so that I might have an eternity with him. That night I repented of my sins and was saved. In the following years, I began to battle with lie number one. I can't know for sure that I'm truly saved. I had many doubts concerning my salvation, but didn't talk about my fears because I didn't want anyone to think I wasn't really saved. I wanted everyone to accept me as a fellow believer. God used Southwest Bible Camp greatly during this phase of doubting. Every year, my family would go to the summer camp. And each year, I understood the gospel better and would recommit my life to the Lord until one day I finally came to his truth when I read John 10, 28. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. When I read this verse, I rejoiced in the truth of his security. I no longer had to fear this lie. I could take God at his word and rely on this truth. I was his, and no one could snatch me away. Line number two, God can't love me as a sinner, therefore he doesn't really want a relationship with me. I found myself believing this during a time when I began to struggle with certain sins in my life. I wanted a relationship with God, but thought God couldn't possibly want a relationship with me because I felt so hypocritical in asking God for forgiveness, but then sinning all over again. Feeling this guilt, I allowed myself to fall deeper into sin, living in disobedience, and choosing to dishonor God. One day, after realizing how far I had allowed these sins to take control of my life, I broke down in confession to the Lord and asked him to please forgive me. I told him to do whatever he needed to and bring me back into fellowship with him. He answered this prayer in less than a week when I was diagnosed with a condition that normally would require immediate surgery. After consulting a doctor, my family and I decided we'd treat this condition naturally. Taking this route would mean healing would take longer and be much more painful. But I saw this directly from the Lord. This was his gentle discipline in my life, and I accepted it with thanksgiving. After three weeks of being completely bedridden, the all-natural process worked with the loving help and support of my family. Those were probably the most painful three weeks I've ever experienced in my life, but also the most beautiful. When I look back on this time, I remember how the Lord didn't only heal my physical condition, but more importantly, he healed um, my, he healed my spiritual state so that I wouldn't continue running away from him. I'm so grateful for that, for that time, for having returned to the goodness of his truth 
in realizing an intimate relationship with Christ can be experienced and that he truly does desire to forgive. For do, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. Line number three, God cannot use me to witness to others. I spiritualize this lie by telling myself that since I'm not very knowledgeable or as familiar with scripture as I should be, people would be turned away from the word instead of being drawn to God by my lack of ability. God convicted me of this, showing me that my eyes were looking only at my strengths and not at God's power. During my time living and working in Albuquerque, New Mexico, God placed a burden on my heart for my coworkers, desiring to lean on God for, my, for strength I saw his provision while sharing the gospel with all my coworkers, inviting them to meetings and to my sister and brother-in-law's house for a meal. Things were going great until one day this truth was tested when my manager started questioning my beliefs in front of those I had been witnessing to. He tried to ridicule the gospel and those who chose to follow it. Of all my coworkers, he was the one I had decided I would never have the opportunity to share the gospel with and secretly hoped I would never have to, <laughs> seeing he'd be the last person on earth um, who would be interested in anyway. God certainly has a sense of humor. God used that tough conversation to open doors for what followed. The very next week, my manager asked if he could visit my church since he heard I had been inviting people. I was shocked. He went. Within a year, he made a decision to follow the Lord and is active today in that local assembly. 2 Corinthians 12.9 My grace is sufficient for you, for, for my strength is made perfect in weakness, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Line number three, God can't use me to minister my own assembly. This is the most recent change the Lord has brought about in my life. I've always desired to be committed to my local assembly, be active, and prioritize attending meetings the way I've always seen through the example of my parents and grandparents, but usually found I had no pleasure in doing so. I noticed I had been discouraged by the lack of activities and from seeing so many young people walk away from the faith who at one point seemed committed. I felt there was nothing for me in my church. I was looking for what I could gain instead of what I could give. God asked me again to allow him to use me and not allow myself to stop him from furthering his purposes through me. He placed a burden on my heart to reach out to young believers in my assembly who were struggling in their walk and who didn't have someone to come alongside them and help carry their burden on their journey of growth in the Lord. It hasn't been easy being someone who has always used the excuse of being shy, introverted, and ungifted to have to be put out of my comfort zone. But through God's grace, he has used this to open doors for Bible studies, evangelism, and other ministry opportunities. I praise the Lord for this amazing blessing that this has been in my life and look forward to what the Lord has in store as I am only beginning to grow in this area. Today, that is my prayer, that the Lord would use this time at STP to equip me to go back to my local assembly and continue the work he has begun in me and learn to seek God's truth and speak them to my heart. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. On you I wait all the day. Psalm 25, 4-5. Thank you.
Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. How precious is your loving kindness, O God. Therefore, the children of men put their trust in the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you. Psalm 36, 5 through 10. My stomach was nuts as I looked out the window at the countryside flashing by. I silently cried out to the Lord, What now, Lord? Have you forgotten me? What will happen to me in just a few hours when I have nowhere to go, no way to get home, no place to even sleep or eat? Lord, I feel so alone and lost. Why did you bring me all this way only to let me get COVID and have to turn around and go back? As I continued my silent questioning, my conscience began to prick me. And it was as if I heard the Lord begin to tell me, my daughter, have I not been with you this whole time? How can you say you are alone? Have I not led you each step of the way? Was I not there with you in the hospital emergency room? Did I not send someone to find you when you couldn't move or speak to call for help? Have I not shown you that I can and have provided for your every need? Why can you not trust me for this? For those of you who don't know me, my name is Janelle Hamilton. I grew up in Mexico, and I'm related to Elena and to Elda, who just gave their testimonies, as well as the Tidmarshes. I would like to briefly share with you this morning some ways that the Lord tested my faith and dealt with idols in my life last summer, and how he used, at times, difficult circumstances and a lot of unknowns to show me that his faithfulness reaches to the heavens, and how he abundantly satisfies with the great fullness of his house, and how precious it is to put our trust solely under the shadow of his wings. As the crazy year of 2020 came to a close, I felt my life was finally settling into normal. I'd gotten a new job as a middle school English teacher, and my grandfather had asked me to permanently move in with him. I was very excited and looking forward to the future. But only a few short weeks into the new year, 2021, the Lord called my grandfather home. I was devastated. I never got a chance to say goodbye and I was filled with so much remorse. After his passing, I withdrew myself completely on the inside, cutting off and building up walls between myself and everyone around me, including God. I pushed people away, letting roots of bitterness grow. It was a time in which I felt the Lord was cold and distant, unreachable and even unloving. Of course, it was me that those words described. I was just too blind to see it. In May of 2021, a few months after my grandfather's death, the Lord finally brought me to a breaking point. He began to pull out those roots of bitterness, and he began to show me how self-absorbed I was and how distrusting I'd been of all his ways for my life. It felt great to get right with the Lord once again, but I still felt lonely, and I knew that I needed godly friendships. I also had a strong desire to know the Lord more deeply. I want to experience you fully, Lord. I want to see your working in my life. I want to learn to trust in you every step of the way, was my prayer as summer began. Be careful of what you pray, because the Lord answers. As part of this desire, I decided to attend the Galilee program in Louisiana with some of my cousins. And at the same time, my mom, hearing again of the DITP program, 
suggested it to me and said I should look it up. I did, but I found on the website that it was still only offered to men. But as I read through the description and details, my heart thought, this is exactly what I need and what I want. There is much that I could say about the three weeks at Galilee and what the Lord taught me there, but I'll only mention a few things. First of all, I found out that the DITP website is very outdated. The program had been open to women, and in fact, I got to meet some of the recently graduated women there at Galilee. I began to pray and seriously consider attending the program, but in my mind, it would have to wait. I had committed to my job, and I had no funds to even sign up for DITP. One day, they called a few of us into a meeting, asking if we'd consider joining the program that very year. I felt a great desire to join, but all I could see were the things that were keeping me from signing up. The Lord must have decided that he needed to get to work right away on this very hard-headed and stubborn girl because as I walked out of that meeting, I was slipped an envelope with money inside. But my faith was so small, I had a long way to go. After Galilee, we were heading home when we felt the burden to turn around and help at a camp in Missouri, Turkey Hill Ranch Bible Camp. They had asked for help, and upon realizing that none of us had any pressing commitments back home quite yet, we decided that if they accepted us, even without knowing us, and even that we'd, we'd arrive there late, we'd go because it was the Lord's will. We called them, and they said, please come. So we did, and saw the Lord provide for us in amazing ways as it took two to three days to get there. While at this camp, there was another young man there whom we'd done Galilee with, Ethan Hanlon. And he asked if we'd be willing, after Turkey Hill was done, to go help at another camp in New York, Lilolai. Unfortunately, most of us by then had commitments in Mexico that we needed to get back to. But not wanting to appear very negative or selfish, I told him, oh, I wish I could. That would be so nice. And he immediately said, can you pray about it? I gave the good Christian answer and said, yes, I'll pray about it. <laughs> I didn't pray about it once. <laughs> in fact, I completely forgot about it. And next week, Ethan asked, how are your prayers going? And I, thinking he was referring to the early morning daily staff prayer meeting, said, oh, I wasn't there today. I had to take care of the campers this morning. It was my turn. He quickly set me straight and reminded me that he had asked me to pray, and I said I would. Embarrassed, I admitted that I hadn't prayed about it once. He told me, camp is an urgent need. If they don't get someone to help out in 24 hours, they're going to have to cancel it. Can you please reconsider? Pray about it this time. Humbled, I said I would, but immediately doubts began to fill my mind. So I brought one up. I said, how do we even get there? It's all the way in New York and we're in Missouri. He said, really? That's your excuse, not having a way to get there? If the Lord wants you to be there, he'll provide. I kept my mouth closed after that. <laughs> I went and prayed about it that night. Really, lots of doubts in my mind, but the Lord pushing me on and pushing me forward. So I thought, okay, I have a job. It would be a bad testimony if I just quit that job all of a sudden, spiritualizing my excuse, which actually was one of the same excuses I had used for DITP. But I thought, I will give it a chance. I'll write to my boss and see what he says. He never answers me right away. He's on vacation. They need an answer in 24 hours. He won't answer, so it's basically a no. But do not say I didn't try. I'll do it. When I went to get my phone, I saw that I had a message from one of my best friends asking me if I knew of any English teaching jobs available as her husband was looking for a job. Her husband had been offered the exact job I had, but he had to decline it months earlier. <sighs> was this a coincidence? Maybe. I sent a message to my boss, very hypothetically, maybe, I'm thinking about, I don't know, possibly. Within minutes, he'd answered and said, 
Sure, that's totally fine. We'd like to see you here next year if you'd like to join us, and Josue would make a great addition to our team. I hadn't even asked to resign, and I'd already lost my job. <laughs> I didn't know what I was about to do. Um, I thought, okay, well, the last straw is going to be my parents. There's no way they're going to let me go with someone that they don't even know to a place they've never even heard about for who knows how long and no way to get back. I called them, and they said, if that's where the Lord is leading you, that's totally fine with us. The Lord went on to provide so many ways. He provided a ride for us to get there. Four of us young people, three of them, whom I'd, uh, two of them whom I'd never met before, all traveled up to New York. Within a day, I was sick, and within the second day, I had been taken to the emergency room, unable to move or even speak. I was, uh, tested positive for COVID. That brings me back to the start of my testimony. The Lord went on to provide with so many ways, bringing me all the way home from New York with COVID along the way, I had a ride to Kansas City, and even though I didn't know where I was going to stay once I got there, people began calling me shortly after that praying to the Lord. People I'd never met, people who I didn't know how any, any had, didn't know how they even knew that I was sick or needed a place to stay, offered a hotel room, food to eat, rides, a home in Texas to quarantine, and the Lord brought me all the way from New York to Texas with about $100 and a whole lot of believers. And then my parents were able to pick me up and bring me back to Mexico. It was there that I decided I needed to sign up for DITP. The Lord had removed idols in my life and shown me that he was faithful. He was trustworthy and he would fully and completely satisfy my every need. And he continues to show me the same thing. And I would just like to um, challenge you all to hold things with an open hand. The Lord is good and he is faithful and if you hold things with an open hand, he can choose what to remove and what to give back to you in an amazing way. He alone is the one that provides every good thing in our life. And even if we don't know what that good thing is, he does and we can trust him with it. Thank you. That's going to be a hard act to follow right there. <laughs> it was 1986 when Ronald Reagan said that the nine most frightening words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. <laughs> now when you consider the current ineffectiveness of our body politic, you can probably more than uh, understand that statement. So. Where do you, where do we turn when, when we need help? Depending on what you need help with, uh, you might turn to a friend or a neighbor, um, someone you trust, right? But what if it's something more specialized, right? Something your friends and neighbors really can't help you with. Like uh, if your plumbing is out, right? You need to call an expert, you need to call a plumber, right? So you call the plumber and then you wait for him to show up, right? In that four hour window, losing hope minute by minute that he's ever gonna show up, right? He said, I'll be there by four, it's 3.55, he's not there. And minute by minute, they're not showing up. The leak under your sink continues to grow, as does your anxiety about the damage that's being done to the, your know, cabinet and your subfloor, you know, and it's just, he's not showing up. And then, minutes before you have to leave the house to go pick up the kids, there he is at the door, he comes in, fiddles under the sink for a few minutes and then sends you a bill. 
As Christians, where do we look for help? Where are you waiting? Or sorry, my question is, where oh, sorry, are you waiting for help to show up in your walk with the Lord? I have to confess, I've often been guilty of this kind of waiting, waiting for him to show up and drag me out of my circumstances or change my heart. You know, in this process, it really leads to a sense of hopelessness over time. Have you ever felt that way? While God does use other believers in our lives and that, you know, we are called to be part of the body to build up one another, there is an aspect of our Christian lives where help is not coming. Help is not coming because God has already given us everything that we need. And really, in my circumstance, I had a responsibility in my walk with him. Would you please turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses uh, 1 through 8. All right. 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God and safe of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and then in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the first thing that I, you know, I thought of when I read these verses a couple weeks ago was, to whom is help given? What Peter says ultimately here in his, uh, his address is, um, he's talking to believers. He's talking to those who already have a faith the same kind as ours. So we can expect that as we walk through this passage, um, he's going to be talking to believers. So the next question was, okay, so what have we been given? Well, it's right there in the verse, in verse 3. Everything pertaining to life and godliness through life's through God's divine power. So let's start with the first thing, life. God has solved our biggest problem through his son in giving us life through him. God has given us his own son to solve, that, to solve our problem of separation from him. Whereas we were formerly dead in our sins, Jesus has given us life through his work on the cross. And it is through his work on the cross 
that we can now experience the eternal life of abundance that God really intends for us, right? We have John 10:10b, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly, right? And then later down the road in John 17, verse 3, Jesus tells us that this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The second part here is that God has given us everything we need for godliness. I kind of phrase it up as sanctification, right? The process of becoming more like him. And in that work, for that work, he has given us his Holy Spirit. John 14, 16 and 7 tells us, Jesus tells us, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him because he abides, but you know him, sorry, because he abides with you and will be in you. And later in the same chapter, Jesus tells us, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. I want to put this disclaimer up front here before we kind of walk through the following verses, that we've been given the Holy Spirit as believers so we can walk with God. The Holy Spirit is not going to help us do things that are contrary to his nature. So if you're hoping for the Spirit to help you in a way that is contrary to God's means, uh, contrary to his ends, you know, that's not going to happen for you. The other thing that Peter mentions here in this verse is that God has given us his precious, prom- his precious and magnificent promises. You know, I, uh, I did a little research and it's estimated there are, there are, there, it's estimated that there are over 7,000 promises in the Bible. And many of those are related to holiness and sanctification. There are things like freedom from sin's dominion, grace that is sufficient, and that we've been given the power to obey his commands, obey God's commands. And Peter tells us that it is by these promises that we have escaped and are escaping the corruption of the world. So we should definitely consider them precious. And furthermore, considering all three of these aspects, we can know that the the provisions of God are reliable and sufficient because they are given through his divine power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead continues to work today in each one of us that knows him. So moving forward in these verses, what does Peter tell us to do with the help that God has given us? Well, really, to sum it up, he tells us to become like Christ. He says that we can become partakers of the divine nature, that we should become partakers of the divine nature and make God's promise of being transformed into the same image of Christ a reality in our lives. You might think of this as cultivating Christian character or alternatively alternatively pursuing holiness. Even in the Old Testament, I mean, really, you know, definitely Old Testament, you know, in Leviticus, God says to the Israelites, be holy for I am holy. That hasn't changed for us today. In our endeavor to fulfill God's desire for us to be like his son, that's what we're doing. We are being holy. We are becoming holy for he is holy. We are growing in holiness. And it's really only with the help of the Holy Spirit that we can cultivate this holiness. 
So having been given all that is necessary to, the, to live the divine life, it is now on us, it's our responsibility as believers to diligently cultivate Christian character. So how do we then do that? Well, Peter kind of lays, Peter lays this out for us in the following verses, right? First thing he says is, be, apply all diligence. So it is by diligent supplementation of our faith with these seven elements of holiness that Peter is calling us to, uh, to work through. And it's with the enabling power of the Holy Spirit that we can be successful in this endeavor. Now, thinking about what this being our responsibility, we need to understand that sanctification does not come automatically. God will not make us holy against our will or desire, and it's not up to the Holy Spirit or other Christians we know to do the work for us. Peter's telling us that we need to diligently apply ourselves as students uh, before an exam or an athlete before a competition and focus on the task at hand. So the first aspect here that Peter points our attention to is moral excellence. I kind of thought of this in two ways, that moral excellence you could consider as agreeing with God, right? That your morals align with his. And uh, furthermore, agreeing with God in such a way that your morals direct your actions. So you might think of this as even, you know, courage before a hostile world, right? As, as Elena mentioned in her testimony, when her manager came to her, someone she never thought, you know, would be interested in the gospel, because of her morals and her, her uh, relationship with the Lord, right, and how that had impacted her, she was able to make a choice in that moment to share with him and to be open and transparent with him. So we need to be constantly on guard in this respect to make sure that our morals and our actions uh, are aligning with the Lord. Because really, in the heat of the moment, our old nature can rise quickly if we're not careful. The next thing that Peter adds us to ask, tells us to add to our faith is knowledge. We need to be filled with spiritual truth by studying the word of God. It is really easy for us to believe the various lies of the world uh, or the lies of Satan or even the lies that we hold internally if we are not studying, the, if we're not studious of the word. Even in the wilderness, right, Christ quoted the scriptures to rebuke Satan who then fled from him. So study the Bible like your life depends on it because it's through your diligent study and obedience to the word of God that you'll develop the practical skills you need to walk well. Peter then calls us to self-control. And you know, similarly to uh, you know, our moral excellence, we need to exercise self-control. Right? There are so many things in the world that vie for our attention and so many snares that desire to entangle us. And so as we walk through this minefield of life, we need to maintain discipline and stay focused on the goal to which we are striving. Whether it's discipline in prayer, Bible study, or our use of time, we need to exercise self-control, exercise self-control. And self-control is really maybe one of the best ways that we can engage the Holy Spirit because it's by denying ourselves and uh, that we give him room to work. And finally, one of the things, one encouragement on self-control is that as you practice self-control, it becomes easier to be self-controlled. And 
my, 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 uh, cons- the, what, the conclusion I came to with this is part of the reason for that is that as we exercise self-control and give the Holy Spirit more room to work, the things that are desirous to him, the things that he wants, become more desirous to us. And in the same way, we need to develop discipline. In the same way we need to develop discipline by self-control, we also need to persevere in discipline. Putting off the old man is not a one-time event. If you consider that you need to have self-control, well, you need to persevere in self-control for that to be effective. And persevering will grow in perseverance as things which once seemed difficult or not worth our time increase in value to us, really because of the Holy Spirit. Peter then tells us in our perseverance to cultivate godliness, right? In the process of cultivating Christian character, we're changed, and our lives should be reflecting God ever increasingly. Our personal, practical holiness should grow to the point that there's a supernatural quality to our conduct, and as children of God, there should be an unmistakable family resemblance. You know, when I, read, <laughs> when I was thinking about this verse, I really thought about, you know, uh, Peter Thomas and Brian Thomas, and there's no denying that Peter is Brian's son, right? From the way they look to the way they talk, you can tell that they're related. And in the same way, we should be reflecting God in our lives, in our actions, in our words. And finally, Peter points us towards brotherly kindness and love. This is part of the family resemblance that is an outward expression of brotherly kindness and love. John, in, in John 13, Jesus tells us, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, and that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So in that, it is our love for each other that identifies us as Christians to the world. A spirit-driven love of the brethren that leads to a love for all mankind, right? Then love is not easy, right? We have conflict between each other, and so we really do need the Holy Spirit involved in our uh, day-to-day interactions with each other and with the world to express this love. So ultimately, what, what is the, there is a gift that comes out of obeying these, these, uh, these things and developing these characteristics. Peter tells us, that out of these seven characteristics that we must diligently supplement our faith with, that if we develop them, we will be useful and fruitful. We'll be productive branches in the vine, bearing fruit day in and day out. And I think it's very convenient to have the fruit of the spirit banner behind me uh, as uh, we, talk, we talk through this, because this is what fruitfulness is. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. <laughs> I swear I know those. Anyway, <laughs> and, and really, this fruit, it's beneficial to us personally. It's beneficial to the body collectively and to the world. So in conclusion, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness in salvation through his Son and his Holy Spirit as our helper, as our helper in sanctification we can expect no greater portion than that which he has already given us because he's already given us himself in full. He has not withheld himself from us. The helper he has provided is not without purpose, though. His goal and purpose 
are to help us grow in holiness and cultivate Christian character, becoming ever more like Christ and becoming ever more attuned to his spirit. And consequently, we need to remember that the Holy Spirit has not been given to us to serve our purposes, but God's purpose in this. We also need to realize that every attribute Peter instructs us to cultivate, moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love, require us to take diligent, disciplined action. The Holy Spirit is our helper, but he's not going to do the work for us. Consider this. As a musician, I have several tools that I can use to help me practice. I have a tuner to tell me you know, where I fall with respect to true pitch, and I have a metronome to tell me where I fall with respect to true, to true time. And they can be extremely useful. But if I don't apply them in diligent practice, they're of no use to me. So, brothers and sisters, do you think that you need more of the Lord before you can grow in holiness? Are you waiting for him to drag you out of your circumstances or change your heart? If you are waiting for that kind of help, stop. And I'm not saying that there's no, there, there will not be periods of waiting on the Lord. Right? We are instructed to wait on the Lord, but it's not this kind of waiting. So consider how you can diligently pursue holiness and the cultivation of Christian character in your lives. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for all that you've done for us already, Lord, and it's so much. Lord, you've given us your Son and salvation through him, Lord, and you have provided your Holy Spirit to us that we can grow in holiness and grow in relationship with you. Lord, I pray today that you'd be helping each one of us to examine our lives and see where we can pursue these seven attributes diligently and just continue to glorify you. Lord, we love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.